Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, church family. Um, The Lord is merciful. Do you know that this morning? And... um, So I want to expound on that here in a moment. I actually didn't know that this morning we had communion, so this call to worship is quite fitting. In Isaiah chapter 1, so Isaiah begins prophesying, and he prophesies against Israel initially because of Israel's sin. Um, And he goes into a lot of detail about that and and the... consequence of their sin that they rightfully deserve okay so that's where that's where we're at in verse chapter 1 verse 10 it says listen to the lord you leaders of sodom listen to the law of your god people of gomorrah so they're not literally he's not literally referring to sodom and gomorrah he's saying that the nation of israel has gone so far wrong that they're like sodom and gomorrah before the lord destroyed destroyed it so he says i'm sick of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fattened cattle I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you came to worship me and asked, who asked you to parade through my courts with, a, with your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts and the incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebration of new moon and the Sabbath and for your special days of, for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are all a burden to me and I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though, you're offering, though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. So we could see here that the Lord is displeased severely with the nation of Israel. In verse 18, it says, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. In the, um, the ESV, it says, Come and let us reason together. Now, whenever I think of that, I think, okay, Israel has sinned, and the Lord says, let's reason together. This means that Israel is in for (laughs) a serious consequence, right? The most reasonable outcome of a bad behavior is a consequence, right? When you murder, the reasonable repercussion is prison. That's reasonable, correct? So he says, come and let us reason together. Now listen to God's reasoning here as he moves forward. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are like crimson i will make them as white as wool if you'll only obey me you'll have plenty to eat but if you turn away and refuse to listen you'll be devoured by the sword of your enemies i the lord have spoken so where you think there would be consequence there's mercy where there rightfully should be consequence god shows mercy um a few years ago i was i was in my early christian life i was trying to teach my uncle the gospel. I was like, uncle, you got to know the gospel. This is is good stuff, you know. And one of his responses to me consistently was, um, you don't know the bad things that I've done. Now, in my early Christian life, I didn't really know what to say, so I just kept trying, you know. And after a few months of going back and forth, he said, nephew, you don't know the bad things that I've done. And I finally said, uncle, you don't know the goodness of God, because no matter what it is that you've done, there's room for mercy. If you become as wicked as Israel has been, as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah were in the past, there is room for mercy because God is good and he is merciful to even the most wicked of people. Church, God is good and he is filled with mercy, though we don't deserve it. All right. Good morning, everyone. Well, we just missed it. Sorry. Good afternoon, everyone. 
Let's go to Acts 17, and um, I want to talk this morning on uh, religion in the wrong direction, and hopefully we can uh, correct that if it's going on in our thinking, in our lives, uh, but you know that being religious is not the same thing as knowing God, right? Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think, like, I don't think that religion is a bad word. Some people do, and I, I often hear this. We're not religious. We, we have a relationship, and that's true. Um, but I don't think that, that it's necessarily a bad word. Religion has to do with beliefs and, and practices related to a God. And in one sense of the word, you're being religious right now. Okay, so are you bothered by that? Are you offended? <laughs> but you're being religious right now because we're doing something related to a God. And the God, I don't, I don't want to just say a God, but, but the God, uh, the one true God. But uh, being here, doing this, in one sense, we're being religious. But have no fear. We are not only practicing religion, we are being caught up into the living God. Thank, thank, thank the Lord for that, right? That's more than just going through motions today. As Joe was uh, sharing what he was sharing at the beginning of Isaiah 1, I was thinking, oh, no. This is going to act like the counterbalance to my message that we are not to. And what God wants, he, it's not that he doesn't want us to do religious things. He doesn't want us to do ritual without heart. Okay, so uh, some people just escape ritual and not, not come to church regularly. Don't do that. What we need to do is we need to bring our heart along with ritual and so that we're doing things for the right kinds of reasons. And so we might be offended if somebody called us religious. You might be that right now. Partly that's because we understand that what we have in God was given to us and not uh, from our own works that we've done. So much of religion is man-made ladders into heaven and theological guesswork that we invent ourselves. Do you know that when it comes to idol worship, people make gods to suit themselves? They do. We make gods to suit ourselves. And, and when it comes to the living God, when he requires sacrifice of us, when he requires a certain kind of living, we understand that he's doing that because he's a real person. And he loves us and he engages us. And the religion, if, if we would even want to call it that, the, the beliefs and the experience and the miracle that we have as a result of God's work has come from heaven down to us, not the opposite way. This is uh, something that is known as prevenient grace, that God always acts before we do. Do you know that? That we never like get ahead of him and go, I'm going to get one on God, and I'm going to do this religious thing, and then he's going to owe me. <laughs> Come on, let's laugh a little bit, because isn't that funny to think that like God would ever owe us anything? He's always acted first. He's always extended the olive branch first. He's always stepped out first and invited us in relationship. You know, as Joe shared this morning, though our sins were as scarlet, we would think the come now, let's reason together is like when you're a little kid and your parents want to talk to you about something serious, like something that you've done. Let's have a talk. And we think, oh, no, we're in trouble now. And what happens is, in fact, the opposite. God says, I want, I want there to be a solution to this. And I'm going to do it from my side to you, towards you. I'm going to fix the problem. And so we understand that. When we hear religion, we tend to think of man upward, that it's man trying to, uh, to 
ascend the stairway to heaven rather than it's uh, than God coming down, which is what we understand uh, our Christianity to be. Uh, I think that we understand that it culminates in Christ. Christianity, if it is religion at all, and James seems to think so, and Paul seems to think so, it's not from the ground up, but from heaven down. We also, if somebody said we were religious, we might be offended at being called religious because we are in in this church and in other churches around the city. We are a reactionary movement. Did you know that you're part of you're part of the? Can I say it? The rebellion against formalism. That in time past, in Christian history, a formalism grew up that said it's all about the ritual, that it doesn't matter as long as you say these particular words, as long as you move these beads through your finger. Anybody know what I'm getting at here? As long as you fulfill this certain ritual, then everything's okay. You don't have to mean it. I don't think they would say that, but I think that oftentimes that's the way it's lived out. You don't really have to mean it. You just have to kind of do it. You don't have to mean going to church. You don't have to pay attention when you go to church. You just need to find your, a way to get our carcass into a particular seat within the church. And we're good. And that's the thinking that many have. And, and we come out of the Protestant movement that is a protest against that. And we come, out of anti, uh, we come into an anti-formalism movement that we don't like the formalized religion. We like t- tend to think of things more free-flowing and let's be moved by the Spirit. And we, we know as part of our Pentecostal or charismatic heritage that when you showed up to church, you might not know who's going to speak that day. You might not know what God's going to do that day. He might surprise all of us and do something amazing and different. And there was an excitement about that. And maybe that's something that we've lost a little bit. But if we're called religious, it suggests to us some kind of dead formalism. And I don't want to suggest that that's the case. We might be offended if somebody called us religious because it means that we are just sort of practicing those rituals and not extending this thing into all of our lives. Do you realize that our walk with God is more than what we do here? Come on, isn't that true? It's more than just going to church on Sunday. It's more than putting our tithes in the offering. It's more than saying our prayers and doing our devotions. It's more than that. Even if you do those things at home, some of those things at home, it's still more than that. It it uh, changes us at the core of who we are. And if somebody called us religious, we might be offended because this is not merely a creed that we're committing ourselves to or to a set of principles or practices, but to a person. We have a Father who looks after us, and we have a Savior who redeems us, and we have a Spirit who dwells within us. And so it's much lovelier even than how I've described it now. So when somebody says you're religious, we we tend to think, well, that means they don't think that I'm serving a real living God who is a God of relationship. But in Acts 17, which is our passage for this morning, Paul came to Athens after he was chased out of two other cities. You can see them in your probably in your bright headings there. He's chased out of two other cities, and he comes to Athens. And I have, a, I have a hunch that maybe this is the first time that he's ever been to Athens because of his reaction. Now, maybe he's seen it again, and it's reoccurring to him, but, but I don't know why he would have gone there before. I think it's one of the places that as a, uh, a Pharisee, unsaved in his prior to Christ's life, it's the kind of place he would have avoided. And so now he's come here in the providence of God, and he's come here in uh, his desire to see the gospel spread, and he sees something in Athens 
that is different. He notices right away how, listen, how religious the Athenians are. He notices how religious they are. And Athenians, they wouldn't have been offended by being called religious. To them, it was a compliment. And Paul said it uh, in order for it to be a compliment because what he wanted to do was create a common ground between them that both of them, in their own way, are pursuers after God. Now, they're wrong, and he's going to tell them that they're wrong because they're, they're in ignorance about what God really is and who he is. But he at least gets common ground in recognizing, hey, we are, you're religious and you have zeal, and that's a good thing, but it's a good thing in a wrong direction. Do you know you can have passion and zeal for things of God, and it can go in the wrong direction? So we have to have truth to guide us. You know, you can be a live wire or like a fire hose that, you know, is just... Out of control, you've got to have something to hold that into place. The truth helps to do that. And, and so as we are looking at this, Paul is, is saying that being your, your being religious is not a bad thing. And he said it to create this common ground. He, too, was zealous for a God. I wanted to show you some pictures here. This is from our, uh, our trip to Athens. Uh, the church sent us uh, on a ministry enrichment trip, and we went saw the seven churches of Asia and then got on this little cruise boat, went across the Aegean Sea to Athens and, and up through Greece. And when we came to Athens, one of the things that we noticed that is not going to be in your biblical text, there's a lot of graffiti. That's one thing. But then the other thing that you notice is that that uh, temple that you see up there is called the Parthenon, it's on the Acropolis. The Acropolis is the castle part of the city that's built on the high hill. And you can see that from a lot of different places within the city because it was built on a high hill. And so one thing you did is if you had one patron god that was over the city, which in this case was Athena, hence the name Athens, then you would put that temple up where everybody could see it. And so there was not only that temple, but there are a lot of temples. They say uh, there's a travel guide. You know travel guides didn't just come in the 20th century or whenever. They have a second century travel guide of a guy, can't remember his full name, but it starts with a P, that he described the roads of Athens about 200 A.D., that they were lined with statues. That everywhere you went, you saw statues, statues of gods, statues of men, statues of uh, that were idols. And so the temple would be in a really, a really, really prominent place within the city. And so they were a very religious people. They had a temple that was dedicated to Rome, uh, and it was called the, temp- the the goddess Roma, and they worshipped at that shrine, and they worshipped at other shrines, but the main patron god would be Athena, and so they worshipped there. And they had no problem with cross-pollinating their religious ideas. It was when you began to start, much like India, claim exclusivity that Jesus is the only way, that the true God is the only God that you got into trouble. And that's our culture too right now. We're in postmodern culture People believe you're entitled to believe whatever you want to believe. Just don't tell me I'm wrong about what I believe. That's where we're at. So Paul comes to this place. You can see this is on a a walk up to the, um, I'm really proud of this picture. I don't know if Janie or myself took this picture, but it's a really good one. And the reason you're missing part of the temple there is because during the Ottoman uh, invasion, a bomb was set off there, which been, I think, about the 1400s, maybe 1600s. And so they're missing part of that. They try to constantly restabilize it. Do you know, uh, the interesting thing is that Athena was considered the virgin god. 
about 500 years after Christ, Christianity so pervaded this area, they made it a church. Do you know that? They made this a church, and they continued to call it Our Lady the Virgin. But they just switched. Now it's Mary. It's not (laughs) Athena anymore. That's something to think about. Anyway, so here we are standing on the Acropolis, looking at the Parthenon. They are very religious. And standing in a similar place to where that picture was taken, if you turn around, you can see this little mound in the background, and that's Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, right there. And so this is where Paul goes to preach the gospel. The Athenian religion had gone in the wrong direction, and if you've ever been looking for home, you know there's a thousand ways to go the wrong way, right? And there's one right way. In the end, you ultimately have to turn that right direction if you're going to get there. Are you with me? Like you can go a thousand different directions and not get home. But there's only one way home. And so when it comes to knowing God, that's a similar thing. The Athenians have gone in the wrong direction. Let's read our passage here, verse 16 and following. Paul has come from uh, Berea. There's believers there that are checking the scriptures, and there were good things, but he got pushed out of the city by a group of uh, his zealous countrymen. And he comes to Athens. He leaves uh, his companions behind. It says, while Paul was in, uh, was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Okay, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Those are competing schools of philosophy that they don't really like each other's beliefs, but they both argue with the gospel. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the meeting at the Oropagus, which is the picture you're looking at there, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching that you are presenting, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know more about them. And then there's this parenthetical statement that Paul makes, or Luke makes here, rather. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their times doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I always laugh a little when I hear that. Paul uh, then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found even an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so you are ignorant of the very thing that you are worshiping, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Pause there for a moment. One of the things that pagan sacrifices thought they were doing was feeding spiritually a God on those animals. That's what they thought. When I offer my sacrifice, I'm sending those vapors up, and it's collected into the ether, and it becomes spiritual food for these spiritual gods. And Paul's saying, the God that I know doesn't need that. He doesn't need that because he made everything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Notice the word ignorance again. Remember the word unknown and the thing that you don't know. I'm going to proclaim to you. He said that prior. But now he commanded all people everywhere. It's at the end of verse 30. He commands people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So let me uh, highlight these verses for us so we can kind of we pass through a lot of text there, but I want to highlight a few things here. First, I want to mention to you that this is the, the right reaction that Paul has when he comes to Athens is to be deeply distressed. The Bible talks about him being perplexed within his soul. There's something about idolatry, about wickedness, that ought to cause us as holy people to be disturbed. Because we see God is not honored, because we see other people are living in a lie and they don't know the freedom that God has given. They don't know his true nature, which is liberating, if we'll run to him. Okay? And so he sees all of these things and he's bothered by this. There's no knowledge of God. There's no knowledge of his commands. And maybe this, there's a good chance, this is the most pagan place that Paul has ever been. He grew up in Cilicia, which is Gentile territory. He's not a stranger to idol worship. He knows what goes on, not because he did it, but because he observed it. But now he's come to something that is new, something that the ancient world would have said far exceeds the idolatry of almost any other city. He's bothered by it. He's bothered by it. He will come to Corinth. Corinth could give Athens a run for its money. Okay, in terms of its idolatry. But Paul has seen this. He's shocked by it. And so he's bothered by it. And I want to challenge you as a Christian that we ought to be bothered by sin. We ought to. And I, I would ask you in, uh, to invite the Holy Spirit to come in and to show us how he sees our culture. What if you did that? What if you said, Holy Spirit, I want to see our sinful culture the way that you see it. I want to see sin in myself, in other people, the way that you see it. What, after all, is the name of the Holy Spirit, but holy, right? In the Old Testament, they would have said it more this way, the spirit of holiness. Okay, So it's a recognition that one thing that the Holy Spirit uh, is known for is his holiness. And so Paul was greatly distressed. The second thing we see here is out of that distress, it caused him to want to talk to people. And so he goes his normal route. He goes into the synagogue. He talks to people in the synagogue. And probably they're talking about, man, look at how idolatrous the city is. How do you, as fellow Jews, how do you deal with this? He's talking to God-fearers. God-fearers are those who are Gentiles, but uh, they haven't been circumcised yet if they're males. But they're, they're trying to follow the rest of the law and observe the fact that God is God. 
He talks to them. And then he goes, not only there, but he goes into the marketplace, the Agora, and he, he talks with whoever will listen to him. And he talks about the things of God. And some people come past. these. They hear these debates going on. Paul reasoned there. And uh, the word here for reason is often used in the book of Acts for proclaiming the gospel. That this is not always how preaching is done. Do you know that right now? And I know some of you probably don't like this, but I'm giving a monologue. It's me talking to you. But oftentimes when Paul preached, it was a dialogue. People were asking questions, and he was answering those questions, and there was things that were taking place. And there, there's, a, there's a place for that as well. And so he's reasoning with them, which suggests to me that there's thinking involved. Sometimes we don't like that idea in our Christianity that there ought to be thinking, but there was, there's thinking involved. Third thing is that he found himself debating the intellectuals in the marketplace uh, there, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These two have completely different philosophies of life, but they're debating in the, in the marketplace, and they accuse Paul of being a babbler. You know what that is? It goes back to a word that they use for a little bird that goes and picks up seeds and then takes them wherever and is enriched by them. Seed picker is what babbler is. And the idea is that he's gathered a bunch of disconnected ideas, and now he's trying to make sense out of them, and it makes no sense to these guys that have thought through their philosophy and it's real coherent. So they're troubled by the Apostle Paul. And so they describe him as a seed picker. That wasn't a that wasn't a um, a pleasant thing. It later came to mean somebody who goes around um, sharing ideas with little odd bits of information, but they're really unable to put them together properly. So they take him up to the meeting place of the Oropagus, Mars Hill. This is what you're looking at. Here's another view of that. I think there is. There we go. Okay, this is another view kind of looking down. It rained while we were there. It got really slick up there, but there's a little stairway that goes up there. It's probably a flat surface and maybe a uh, some kind of awning that stood there back in the days of Paul. But these guys would meet there and they would talk about things. And these Athenians that were there, they were the ones that filtered new ideas into the city. And, and, and so if you had a new idea, like the gospel was a new idea, you came and presented that there. And so what Paul does here is he teaches us something about witnessing. I want to talk about this for a moment. We're going we're gonna to move on to uh, our main point in just a second, and we'll, we'll be done before you know it. But uh, he comes in here, and he begins to teach uh, them, to talk to them. And the first thing that I want you to notice that he does when he talks to them is he builds rapport with them, uh, those who are listening, by finding something praiseworthy in common. And this is the thing that he said that was praiseworthy. You guys are very religious. Okay? I know. We're going to take that a different way. But Paul's hearers would have took that as a positive, praiseworthy thing. And Paul would have meant it that way. Because what he's saying is you care about things that relate to deity. You care about that, and that's important. So do I. And so what he's done is he's established that they're on common ground. If you're witnessing to somebody, don't start off with all the differences. Talk about what you have in common. Connect with people and say, look, here's what we have. We have a shared humanity. We have shared problems. We have a shared desire. We have, we have a longing in our heart that's lonely that each of us needs to meet. We have a hole in each of us that requires God to fill it. There's a shared commonality that he proclaims. He says, look, 
you're very religious. The, the KJV doesn't do us a service by calling them superstitious. He didn't mean it in that way. What he meant was that they were religious, and that was a positive thing. Okay, so he's creating common ground. The second thing that Paul does here is he uses their own sources of authority when he talks to them. Verse 23, it comes through and he says, Men of Athens, uh, I see that you're very religious. I noticed when I was walking past all your objects of worship, and I noticed that there was an altar to an unknown God. Okay, so what this was, and we know about this from other writings in history, there was some kind of a famine or a plague that struck Athens. And they pleaded, the Athenians pleaded with all their gods, and the plague didn't stop. And finally, somebody said, let's do this. Let's slaughter some sheep, and let's call upon an unknown god. Maybe that god will answer. Do you know what? They called upon an unknown god. If this ain't beautiful, I don't know what is. They didn't even know his name. And they called upon him, and they said, if you're out there, will you answer? And the plague stopped. And they said, let's build an altar to an unknown God. We need to commemorate this moment. We don't know his name. Paul comes into the city and he goes, you have an altar to an unknown God. Knowing that history, he would have said, this is the God I'm proclaiming to you. The God you don't know. The God you worship ignorantly. And he doesn't mean that derogatorily, but he means you just don't know about him. But I'm, I'm here to tell you about him. He uses something from within their life and experience to communicate the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? And we can do that. We can look for moments like that, places of connectivity in people's lives to tell them, look, you've prayed for this or you've called out for this or this thing has happened in your life. And don't you know, this is the God I want to tell you about. Remember that feeling you had when you went to church as a little kid in Sunday school? That's the God I want to tell you about. So he proclaims. An unknown God, that's using their authority. They're the ones who set that up, not Paul. This isn't a Jewish thing. This is an Athenian thing. He appeals to their authority. The second thing he does, he uses logical argument from premise to conclusion, which is a Greek thing. It's not only Greek, but they specialized in it. And you can see that in um, verses 24 through 25. Look at that quickly with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Here's the logical argument. If he made all of this, you think he can fit in this? That's the argument. If he made all of this, including the stars and all that, how are you think he's going to fit in your little statue? How is he going to fit in your shrine? How is he going to fit in your temples? Can't. From premise to conclusion, he uses their their logical structures and their arguments, and I think it's genius. I don't think we've come to the depths of what Paul has done here, and sometimes we fail in our witnessing because we don't practice this same kind of thing. We meet people where they're at. Paul said, I'm all things to all people. So when he goes to Athens, he preaches one way. When he goes to other cities, he preaches from the Scripture. When he goes to Athens, he doesn't preach from the Scripture. He uses their authorities. It's not to say the Scripture wouldn't have worked there. It's to say this, that he's appealing to their better sense, their basis of authority. And then, does he quote from the Old Testament? Verse 28? No. When he says this, look at what it says in verse 28 here. It says, Paul, uh, nope, 
sorry, therefore, since we are God's offspring, no, verse 20, 28, for in him we live and move and we have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He quotes two poets, two Greek poets. Does he quote the Old Testament? No. He could have quoted the Old Testament, but that's not what he does here. He, quote, he quotes their sources of authority, which is two distinct poets. One of them's name is Eratus and the other Epimenides, and he uses their poets as proof texts to communicate a biblical truth that he already knows. He knows it from the Bible. They know it from their poets. So he appeals to their poets. So this is what your poets are saying. And secretly, I think he's thinking of texts within Scripture, you know. But that's what he's, he says. He appeals to their own authorities on this. And then he appeals to them as fellow humans. Look at verse 29 with me. Notice that he uses second person plural pronouns here. He doesn't say you. You guys need to get your lives straight. You guys are sinners. You guys are terrible. Okay, That may be true. And there might be a place for that. But not here. Paul says we we, we. It's actually first person. I said second. First person. Plural pronoun. Look at verse 29 with me. It says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, not just, not just Jews, Jew and Gentile, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or stone, an image made by human design. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere, that's you, that's me, to repent. For he has set a time in a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Do you see what Paul's done here? He's not isolated and said, I'm here to correct all of you boys. Uh, We've got a problem. He says, look, this is the problem that we all share. And here's the answer to it. And he appeals to Jesus. And then he moves at last to the controversial must. Do you know the gospel has a controversial must, and here's what it is, that we all have to come and repent. We all have to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. We have to come into the fold on his terms, not our own. And so there's a conflict that comes at the end of all this. We can, we can smooth talk people, but at the end of the day, there's a moment of decision that needs to be made when we come to terms with the fact that serving Christ means giving my life to him and trusting him for salvation. Come on, are you with me? It's not just come say yes to Jesus and then all will be okay. Certainly, in the end, all will be okay. But following Christ is counting the cost. And so there's a hard decision to be made. He points out the ignorance of the past in verse 23 and 30. And he's doing that to intellectuals. Don't miss the irony here. In the past, you were ignorant of these things. And now what I proclaim to you Uh, that you worshiped unknowingly, I proclaim to you. And then he talks about God overlooking such ignorance in the past, but he won't do it anymore. So that's controversial. And then history is not circular, but it's moving towards a judgment. Especially uh, the uh, philosophers, they would have believed that that history is circular. And sometimes I think we think that it's just going to go on and on and on like this. And what we need to know is it's moving towards a culmination at which the Lord will judge every person. That's where it's headed. It's not, it's not just going to go on like this, unrestricted. There's going to come a moment at which everyone will stand before his throne of judgment. Everyone. No one escapes that meaning. 
And that challenges them. And then he points to the fact of the resurrection. This is a historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul, uh, as part of his message, all the messages in the book of Acts appeal to the resurrection of Jesus. It's not the gospel without the good news. Back in, when I was first saved, I just wanted to absorb everything Jesus. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And uh, I still do, but I'm a little more careful because back then we decided, hey, at the video store, they got Jesus Christ Superstar. Let's watch that. It's about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but at the end of it, Jesus dies on the cross, then the movie ends. That's not the gospel. Something's missing. Yep, maybe. I don't think they followed it up. But uh, that, I think, is the culmination of this. And the problem for these guys, this is the reason they began to scoff, because in the Greek mindset, the goal of life was to escape the bonds of flesh and move into the spirit realm. And when they talk about a God coming back from the spirit realm into flesh, that a problem. And so they had a mental stumbling block that got in the way of them receiving the gospel. God was unknown to them. They didn't know some things about him. They didn't know what he was like. In verse 16, 24, and 29, they, they imprisoned gods and idols and shrines and temples. They didn't know what he was like, and they thought that he could be captured and things like that. Uh, they didn't know what he'd done. They had no idea about the good news of God's coming in Jesus Christ. They didn't know how close he is. God is close. He's not far at all. And they didn't know how to find him. They were The Bible talks about them seeking him and that they may find him. But the way that this Greek phrase is played out, it has kind of a negative, you draw a negative conclusion that they won't do it. They won't find him. They're groping, the, the word is groping around in the dark. You know, when you're out in the dark and you're just trying to feel for things because you can't see anything and you're hoping to find the thing you're looking for, that's the thing they're talking about here, groping around in the dark, looking looking for God. But they didn't know how to find him. And they didn't know what he required, which is repentance, to abandon their false ideas and to know him. Repentance means a change of mind. The Athenians, they didn't have an understanding worthy of God. And the central thing in this passage, I, I think that they didn't understand, was something that's known as God's immensity. And this is, this is where I want to go from here for the rest of the message, which is short, is that God is immense. And his immensity means this, that God has lordship over space. Okay? I don't mean like outer space where there are stars and planets. True, he's there. But I mean all of space and time. Like my frustration in life, most of my frustration in life comes with, from the fact that I can't be in two places at one time. Anybody relate to that? Like if you're running behind, which is very common for me, I need to be there. I'm here. That's a problem. But God doesn't have that problem. There is no distance. You're as close to him. Janie was as close to him in India as we were here because there's no distance in terms of our relationship with God. We talk about his immensity. You know, distance with God is not measured in feet and inches, but in terms of relationship because God's always near. He was, Paul was saying that, God, you, in him you live and move and have your being. He's everywhere. If you'll just turn to him and reach out to him, you'll, you'll perhaps find him. 
Okay, so he was right there. It's not that God was far away in feet and inches. It's that God was far away in relationships. There used to be this, I can't remember it now exactly, but a, a, a lyric from a rock song back in the early, uh, late 80s about though we're lying here together, we're miles apart inside. You know, you can be close to somebody geographically and distant from them relationally. That's the way that it is often with God, is that we can be close to him in terms of he's here right now. That you could have some rebellion in your heart, some anger in your heart that says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And he's distant relationally. How do you do how do you deal with that? How do you bring God close? It's not by going anywhere. It's not by going to another location. Like if you can get on the top of Mount Zion, you'll be closer to God. No. If I can just get to flat top, I can pray to him and he'll hear me. No. Do you know that in Israel they prohibited them from building super high altars because they wanted to do away with the pagan notion that if I got higher up, I would be closer to God. No, the issue here is that we have to take away the barriers within our heart. We have to let God deal with those because there's a sin chasm that can stand in the way of relationship with God. And so right now he's here. And it's not necessarily that you have to feel, feel him for him to be here. It's interesting that this is happening because in uh, verse 21, it says that these Athenians, they're, they're searching for something. You can see it. It says all the Athenians, this is from the Revised English Bible, all the Athenians and resident foreigners had time for nothing except t- talking or hearing about the latest novelty. They just wanted to hear new ideas. What are they searching for? They're searching for God. You can't tell me that they they found what they're looking for because they're obsessed with finding something new. And this might be the symptom of a failure to discover God and all of his beauty. Sometimes I hear Christians who are trying to improve upon God. You know, it must be God is now like this or he's now like that. Like if if God were a little more like this and there's some kind of new latest idea about what God is like and they attach that on, we run after novelty. And what that really shows me is that we haven't found the God of the Bible. Because when you do, searching is over. I mean, you seek him in, in a different way. But as far as searching to find, that's different. You found him. You've come home. You see, the thing that the the uh, visit in Athens shows us is that he's not the God of feeling about in the dark. He's revealed himself. See, they, he says, some people are reaching out for him and groping about in the dark and trying to feel their way to God. You can't do that. And the reason this is so beautiful is because when you try to feel your way to God, that's man-made religion reaching up. But when we understand the God of the Bible, he's the God who's come down and revealed himself. He's intangible. He's invisible. You can't see him. You can't touch him. In, in fact, there are scriptures that show that you can't even feel him. You know, like you, you get a certain, like, hair stands up on the back of your neck kind of feeling when you're scared or whatever. You can't even feel him in that way unless he allows us to. So here's the point I'm trying to make is that none of that gets us to God. God has come down and he's revealed himself. 
Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, he's revealed himself in the times past through our apostles and prophets, but in these days, he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He's revealed. We serve a revealed God. We're not searching for him. He's, he's made himself known. Sometimes we're like, uh, I have no appetite for that God in the scriptures. I want to go find something different. That's a shame. We're missing out on the beauty of who God is. Second, he's not the God of the latest opinion either. All those guys want to do is talk about new ideas. He's not the God of the latest opinion. He's the God of yesterday, today, and forever. His word doesn't change and his nature doesn't change, regardless of what opinion says about him. He said in one place, you thought I was altogether like you, but you're wrong. He's a God who changes not. He's not a God who is in a faraway heaven, but a God in whom we live all of our lives. There's never a moment in your life, in your whole existence, when you've ever been far from him. He knit you together in your mother's womb. If you go to the depths, he's there. If you go to the heights, he's there. If you're going through difficulty, he's there. If you're facing battles with demons, he's there. If you're seeing angels, he's there. You know what I'm saying? We can't get away from him in one sense. Relationally, we can put a big distance between us and him. But he's there. He's close at hand. He's the God in whom we've lived all of our lives, and he's just a voice away. And he's not the God of tiny idols, but a God who fills all in all. If you want to read an interesting book on this topic, J.B. Phillips wrote a book back in the 60s, I think, called Your God is Too Small. It's worth reading. Your God is Too Small. So this is where I wanted to end today. True knowledge of God will understand something of his immensity, that he is everywhere present. And the reason this has come to me, and, and we dealt with a lot of other things to lead up to this, but but the reason this has come to me um, is, I, I and I need to give credit to Zach. We were sitting here after a praise and prayer the other night talking about this, and he said something. I hope it's okay to share this, but he said when he was growing up, he remembers having a thought about praying up to God and like we're sending out the email, you know, message sent. We pray our prayer and it's got to travel through the ether and through the universe and past the distant stars and far away and maybe eventually it'll get to him. He said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he realized the prayer doesn't have to go anywhere. God is here with us. The moment we pray, it's heard. Our <laughs> That's a paraphrase and maybe an oversimplification. C.S. Lewis talked about the Trinity, and he said, when it comes to prayer, it's like this. You're, you're, you're in your room, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. You're in your room. You're praying to God, the Father, okay? And what you find is that you pray through someone else, God the Son, the intermediary. And then you find that not only that, but you have somebody standing beside you helping you to pray, or who's within you, who's catching us up into the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who's also known by another name, the paraclete, one who stands along the side of us. Isn't that beautiful? Like When you pray, you don't know all that's going on. It's big time. There's something happening in the spiritual realm, and we think it's just little us you know, praying our simple little prayer. And all the while, there's an exchange that's taking place within the Trinity because... The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Man, God is immense. He's everywhere present. 
He's here right now. When you go home, he's there too. This has some implications for living. We have to live right because God's watching. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't get away from here and out of these walls and go, okay, now I'm safe at home where no eyes can see. And I can do whatever I want. No, he's there too. Second, it has implications in the faith. If God is that big, he's not small. And if he's that big, he can do big things. Okay? Third is in relationship to prayer. He's not far away. He's near. And then fourth, in worship. He's not confined to this location as if we need to come here to worship. We do come here. And one of the reasons we come here is to worship together. But you can worship God anywhere. It's, it ought to be part of our worship to worship him anywhere and everywhere. That's what he's called us to. And so today I want to invite us to recognize God's immensity. Thanks for your gracious attention. I went a little longer than I'd hoped. There's a lot here. Stand with me if you would. I think as part of our conclusion today, we ought to pray, Lord, help us to see things the way that you see them. There are, within all of us, I don't care how long you've been serving the Lord, there are still some areas that we have wrong ideas about God, still. And I'm not trying to point out what those are. I, I may not even know. There are some areas where we're ignorant about God, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, just lacking knowledge. Because we haven't read, we haven't studied, we haven't heard, we haven't received. He hasn't revealed it to us. It hasn't been unlocked for us. Whatever reason, there are some areas. We need God's help in those. And maybe there are some, there's some distance within us, not spatially, but rebellion-wise, relationship-wise. Some areas that maybe you've not said, like with a raised hand to God, I'm not letting you in here. Maybe it's more like anytime God seeks to go there, we turn a little bit. Like we're a little bit scared to let him in that area. It's not a fist to heaven, you know, sending with a high hand kind of rebellion. It's more like I'm reluctant. And there's distance, not spatial distance, not feet and inches, relationally. Maybe today we need to let down our barrier and trust him for real. Say, if you're really that good, I can trust you with this. And what, what might God do? Maybe there's somebody here that you're in the position of these Athenians, that you're not really walking with God. You don't really know him. You might go through the routine, but there's no heart for it. Today, could I compel you to choose Christ, to really surrender to him, to really say, Lord, I want to I want to trust that you died for my sins and rose again. I want to give you my life and walk with you. I want you to show me more of who you are. You'll never find anything in this world more beautiful than knowing God. So these altars are open. Maybe you have another way in which the Spirit's compelling you to respond, but I would invite you to turn to Him today with all of your heart. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.